0: So go ahead and open your Bibles now to Genesis chapter 18, and we'll get started. As you're opening your Bibles, we'll go ahead and pray. we got a long uh, chapter ahead of us. We're going to try to rush through it today. Um, So Genesis chapter 18, let's pray. Again, Father God, Lord, it's your word. It's, It's your word written to us to reveal your heart to reveal to us how we're to live our lives in light of your heart. Lord, it, it, your word is there to reveal to us Lord, what you desire for us. Lord, we want to know you. We want to learn of you. We want to grow in our knowledge of you. We want to be the men and women. God, you've called us to be. We want to walk this world, walk through this world as um, lights, Lord, as as witnesses, of your great goodness and grace and glory, Lord. So as we open your word, would you teach us, Lord? Would you speak to our hearts? Lord, everyone that's here listening to this study, pray that you would speak to our hearts, Lord. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. So Genesis chapter 18 starts out, Then the Lord appeared to him by the timber and ter- terebinth trees of Mamre, And he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground. So just to get going here, I think it's really important, whenever it's possible, to kind of figure out what that timeline is from one chapter to the next. Sometimes between one verse and another, there's a year that's gone by or 10 years gone by. You know, so what's the timeline here? Well, Genesis 18 appears to happen about three months or so after the events of Genesis 17. You remember in Genesis 17, if you want to look at it real quick, the Lord told Abraham that it was at this time next year that he was going to have a son. So at this point in our story, Sarah's not pregnant. Okay? So again, it puts the events of Genesis 18 18, about three months or a little bit less than what we read last week in Genesis 17. And it says, Abraham was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. And, uh, you know, it does get very hot in Israel. Uh, and I wonder if Abraham's just not sitting there, just wondering if he's, you know, just contemplating the promises of God, the things that God has spoken to his heart. I mean, he's just there relaxing. He's doing nothing, and he's doing it really slow to make sure he does a good job at it. And and he's probably, in my mind, you know, he's just there communing with the Lord. He's just talking with the Lord in his heart. He's allowing himself to get lost in the promises that God has given to him. And it says in verse two, so he lifted his eyes and looked and behold, three men were standing by him. And the wording here would indicate that these three men appeared suddenly, right? He's, he's there sitting in Israel. I haven't been there to the uh, plains of Mamre, but I'm told when you're there, you can just see forever. He's sitting down, he's looking out. He doesn't see anything. He looks down, and then he looks back up, and bam, these three guys are right there, right now. And, uh, you know, we don't know if Abraham recognized who they were immediately. It seems like he recognized after, you know, he kind of gathered his wits. You know, he's a little bit afraid. You know how it is when somebody, like, jumps out and scares you. Uh, he gathers his wit. And then it seems like he recognizes them. For, at the very least, he recognizes that they're special guys, right? And we read in this chapter, and we're going to read in the next chapter uh, exactly who these guys are, right? In verse 1, it tells us that one of these guys was God. It was Jehovah. It was the Lord, all caps. So it's Jehovah God. Well, wait a minute, Gary. Didn't Jesus say in First, uh, not first John, but in John 1, 18, no one has seen God at any time? Didn't he say that? Hey, uh, didn't Paul write to Timothy saying that no man can see or has seen God at any time? 1 Timothy 6.16. Didn't Moses, when Moses asked to see God, didn't God say to Moses you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live? Exodus 30.20. Well then, how does Abraham see the Lord? All caps here. How does he see Jehovah God? Well, The Lord appearing in the Old Testament in the form of a man. Again, we've talked about this briefly before. It's called a theophany. It's called a Christophany. It's the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. The second person of the Trinity is appearing in a bodily form. So real quick, if if you want to go a little bit deeper in this, you can look and I'll just wet your whistle with it. If you turn over to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10. It says, you, Lord, all caps, talking about Jehovah, you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. And so God is addressing the sun here, right? Look up at verse 8. It says, but to the sun, he says. God's addressing the sun and he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. God in this verse calls the son God. And then God continues saying to the son in verse 9, says, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And now verse 10 starts out, and, so God is continuing to address the son, says, you Lord, all caps or Jehovah, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens or the work of your hands. So it's very interesting. God the Father calls God the Son Jehovah. Also some New Testament references that are worth knowing and, and understanding is Colossians 1 15, where it says of Jesus that he's the image of the invisible God. Okay, Jesus said to, to Philip, remember when Philip said, hey, show us the Father, it would be enough for us. And Jesus says to Philip, you know, he who's seen me, Philip has seen the Father. That's John 14, 9. We worship a God in three persons. These three persons, they're co-equal, they're co-eternal, and they're also distinguishable or distinct from one another. These three distinct persons, you know, they're, they're one God and, uh, everything that's true about God, the father, it's true about God, the son. It's true about God, the Holy spirit, the Trinity or what I like to call the Triunity, because it's, it's three who's and one, what, you know, it, we can't understand it. It's truly one of the mysteries of godliness, right? And we'll probably never understand the Trinity, this side of heaven, um, But, you know what, I know the Bible teaches it. I don't need to understand it. The Bible teaches it, so I just believe it. So back in Genesis, who these guys are, um, verse 1, we saw that one of them is the Lord. But then if you flip over one chapter to Genesis 19, verse 1, we see that the other two guys, they're angels, right? And so I think it's the first time in our study of the Bible that we see angels appearing as men, But um, we do see it from time to time throughout the Bible, right? Remember, the angel Gabriel appeared to Daniel in the form of a man. And we see angels in the form of men in the New Testament too, right? So Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, you know, remember when Jesus was ascending, it says, now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received them out of uh, their sight And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. And these two men, they were angels. They stood by in white apparel and they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So... Here we go. I'm going to silence my phone. Oh, it's already silenced. Anyway, um, so verse 2, He lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing before him, and when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground. I love this. Abraham's, you know, like 99, 100 years old, right? And what does he do? He sees these guys. He starts running, and then he gets down on the ground. He gets his face to the ground, in reverence to the Lord. In verse 3, we read, and he says, My Lord, if I've now found favor in your sight, do not pass on uh, by your servant. So, the first thing that we're going to see here about Abraham is how hospitable he is. Abraham's just a, a tremendous, he's an incredible example how hospitable people in the church, especially leaders within the church uh, are to be. And it's interesting to me, as Abraham uh, extends his hospitality to these three guys as an example, it's interesting to me how much the New Testament has to say about hospitality. Abraham, again, he's this example. Paul writes to Timothy and to Titus, right? He writes to them in both of those letters. He says that that the leaders in the church are to be hospitable, right? Paul writes to the believers in the church of Rome, Romans 12, 9 through 13, he says, this is, this is a description of what just the Christian is supposed to be. The people in the church, these are, uh, uh, this is a description of how we're to live our lives. He says, Romans 12, 9 through 13, let love be without hypocrisy abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, uh, distributing to the needs of the saint. And then he says that we're to be given to hospitality. Christians in general are to be given to hospitality. Peter writes regarding the last days, uh, which are the days we're living in. Peter writes, 1 Peter 4, 7 through 9. If you can turn there, turn there really quick. If not, just listen. It says, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love one for another. This is where we're to act in the church. We're to have fervent love one for another. For, and that's the reason word, could be um, translated because. He says, for love covers will cover a multitude of sins. Then he says, be hospitable uh, to one another without grumbling. Peter says, because the time of the Lord is at hand, we are to be people who are watching and praying and loving each other, and we're to be hospitable one to another, we're not to be hospitable with grumbling, though. We're to be hospitable without grumbling. We're not to do it out of some type of compulsion. Oh, you know what? This is what's just expected. I mean, doggone it, you know. But we're to be joyful in our in our heart. The word hospitable, or um, yeah, hospitality, it it simply means a lover of strangers, right? Christians and Christian leaders. We're to have a love for strangers. When someone comes into our church, you know, somebody comes in and you haven't seen them before, you know, they're, they're maybe new, man, go over and welcome them. You know, I would encourage you to, you know, take a step of faith. Invite them to coffee after church. Spend some time getting to know them. Maybe have them over to the house. You know, with the COVID, it's a little bit harder Maybe you go to to Wild Cherries or someplace and sit outside and just have a bite to eat with them, just to get to know them, just to make them feel welcome. You know, the greatest influence that I've had on people is is when we've invited them into our house, right? When we've sat around the dinner table, we've had dinner together, and afterwards we opened the Bible and we just talked about it. You know, God has given Tina and I just tremendous just great friends all around the world. And it all occurred because we invited them to our house and we just got to know them because we sat down with them around a dinner table and shared with them a meal and then we opened the Bible. And I encourage you again, maybe the Lord would encourage you, challenge you to take a step of faith and invite someone to, to dinner and just begin to invest in them be kindly affectionate towards them and if they're coming to church on a Sunday just to check it out and you find out you know that maybe they're not believers you know they're questioning right ask them over to share a meal you know get them over to your house and while you're while you're getting to know them ask them what their thoughts are in regards to Jesus Christ if they've ever considered the claims of the church ask them you know, uh, if they've ever considered the claims of Christ, I'm sorry. Ask them if they've ever, you know, if they were raised in a church. You know, and as you get talking, you open your Bible to John three sixteen, you know, and show them how God loves them. You open the, John, the Bible to John 3, 3, it says, you know, unless they're born again, they can't see the kingdom of heaven. Then just ask them, hey, what do these verses mean in, in your mind? What do you think Jesus was talking about when he said these things? And then you just sit back, I and mean, let them talk. Just let them tell you what they think these things are and just have that conversation. You know what it's called? Is, it's called friendship evangelism, and it's very effective. When someone invites you, when you're a stranger someplace and somebody invites you to their house and they show you a great deal of love and hospitality, you know what? That's not a normal thing in the world anymore, right? when we do it, it's going to set us apart as Christians. And, you know, as people that, that maybe don't know the Lord, it's going to soften their hearts to the things of Christ, to the claims of Christ, as we pour His love into them. As Christians, we're to love strangers. We're to open our homes to strangers. We're to be hospitable. And the writer of Hebrews, he said in regards to entertaining strangers, right? You know what I'm going to say? He said, you never know, those strangers, they might be angels. Hebrews 13, 2, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing some have unwittingly entertained angels. Well, we also want to notice Abram's reverence for the Lord. Verse 2 says, when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground. And we talked about it last week, that there's something beautiful about bowing before the Lord when you're in his presence. Um, we talked last week about it. You know, uh, again, I want to encourage you maybe in your devotion time, the Lord is just put on your heart to get on your knees before the Lord. Maybe he's putting your heart is just to stretch yourself out, you know, and just on your face before the Lord there on the ground. However, the Lord may be moving your heart. man. I would encourage you, you go with it. You just be free in your worship to the Lord and, and just st- let him just just um, move you to, to worship him the way he wants you to worship him. You know, and again, like we said last week, really the most important position is not the position of your body. The most important position is the position of your heart. And we also see verse 3, Abraham identifies himself as your servant when he speaks to the Lord. It's like he's saying, you know, I'm here to serve you as you please. Lord, just tell me what you need. And you know, I love this in the New Testament, how Paul, Romans chapter 1-1, Philippians chapter 1-1, Titus 1-1, Paul identifies himself as a bondservant first. He's a slave of Christ first. Then he identifies himself as an apostle. Same thing with Peter, 2 Peter 1-1. He says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. James, James 1, one, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jude also, he says, Jude 1, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Jude was actually the half-brother of Jesus also, but he doesn't identify himself that way. He's a willing slave for Christ's sake. You know, the highest title any one of us can achieve in this lifetime it's not doctor or pastor or senator or president. It's nothing like that. The highest title that we can achieve in this lifetime is to be a servant of the Lord, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. Boy, you know, that's my heart. That's what I want to be. Well, what we see here, Abraham is going to do three things for these guys that come and visit him suddenly, right? He says, verse 4, please take a little water. Uh, please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourself under a tree, and I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. He wants to bring some water to wash their feet, and I'm sure that that feels amazing there on a hot desert day. He wants to find them a chair and just let them sit underneath a shady tree so that they can get away from the, the sun just beating down on them, and he wants to feed them. He says. I will bring a morsel of bread, but you know what? I mean, Abraham, talk about an understatement. I mean, he goes all out. He doesn't bring him a morsel of bread. He goes all out to be a blessing to them. He prepares this feast for them. He's going to go and bring out his very best, and he's going to bring out a lot of it. And hospitality is really just that. It's refreshing other people, and blessing them with your best. It says, after that you may pass inasmuch as you've come to your servant. And they said, do as you have said. So the Lord accepts Abram's hospitality here. Verse 5, so Abram hurried into the tent of Sarah and said, quickly, make make ready three measures, of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes. Now, you guys know how it is when you invite people over your house. Uh, without asking your wife if it's okay first, right? I don't know. No one, no one has a more gracious, hospitable, welcoming wife than I have in Tina. Uh, she's really amazing. And you know, Tina has sacrificed so much to follow God's call um, over the years and just uh, to, to just go where the Lord has led us around the world. And you know, she's never complained one time. But even with an amazing wife like Tina... I'm not bringing guests home without her knowing it first, right? I mean, what do you think Sarah said when Abraham said, hurry, prepare some some bread. We have three guests, and one of them is God, and the other two, I'm pretty sure they're angels. You know, I bet you that that Abraham got like a, a, what? Abraham, I told you, don't bring people over without telling me first. You know what? I haven't vacuumed the house yet. It's such a mess. Don't do it. Well, verse 7 says, And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So Abraham, uh, he's here, he's serving the Lord, and uh, he runs out to meet the Lord, we read in verse 2. And we see him hurrying into the tent here to tell Sarah to prepare some fresh baked bread out of this fine uh, flour you know, Abraham, he's got probably, like we said before, he's probably got like a thousand servants. And uh, he's not going to entrust something this important to any one of them. He's going to get Sarah to do it uh, herself. And he runs out and he grabs, I mean, again, ninety nine, hundred years old. What's he going to do? He runs out to the herd and he grabs a calf. He wrestles his calf, you know, into that, to the, I don't know, the house, wherever. You know, it's a, it was a tender and good calf. And he tells One of his guys to butcher this calf and to just prepare some nice, thick veal cutlets so he can uh, give it to the Lord. What we see here is Abram is quickly offering his best to the Lord again. It's his best. He's not offering the Lord uh, leftovers. And it's so very instructive to me. Are we offering the Lord our best or are we giving him uh, what's left over? Are you giving him the best or the first fruits of your heart, of your day, of your income, of your time? You know, does Jesus have our hearts? Does he have the best of us as his followers? These are questions that, you know, we we should wrestle with. Is he getting you when you're fresh, when you're alert, when you're awake? You know, are you meeting him first thing in the morning? Or Does he get what's left over of your day? You know, the word would encourage us to give him our best. You know, we talked about this a few Sundays ago. You know, you don't have to have uh, morning devotions to have a a walk that's on fire with the Lord. You know, you need to do it when you're at your best, though. Right? I know there's some people that they're at their best late into the evening. Tina's mom and dad, when we were dating, I mean, they are just they would just like start getting going about midnight, you know, and then they'd stay up and watch the the late show. You know, not for me. It was never for me. About 9 30, I'm trashed. I'm ready to be in bed, right? I'm done. For most of us though, the morning is the best time when we're at our best. Maybe it means that you give up a little bit of sleep so you can be there with the Lord where you're not, your mind's not, you know, uh, cluttered up with the stuff of the day. It's an uninterrupted time where you can just spend with the Lord. You know, maybe that's the way to go about getting with the Lord and giving him your best instead of uh, giving him what's left over at the end of the day. So verse eight, he, so it says, Abraham took butter and milk and the calf which He had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. What? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Abraham took butter and milk and gave that to the Lord with meat. Apparently Abraham's not kosher. But the Lord and the angels, they ate it. Well, maybe they're not kosher either. Well, the reason I think this is important is because of this. When God told Moses, Exodus uh, 23, Exodus 34, and he repeats it again in Deuteronomy 14, says, you shall not boil a young goat in its milk. God was being literal. When God said that, he was being literal. He wasn't saying you can't mix dairy with meat in your meals. You know, if that was the case, then the Lord wouldn't be eating it here. The Lord would never have been eating uh, what Abram gave him uh, here, the, the milk and the butter along with the meat. You know, it was the rabbis that they took this uh, verse in, in Exodus and Deuteronomy and they reasoned out and said, Yeah, you know, you can't have an in and out double double. You can't have meat and dairy in the same meal at the same time. And they reasoned that the, the reason was that there just might be a chance that the milk that the cheese was made out of came from the cow that birthed the cow that you're eating. So, you know, just to be safe, let's not do it. And that's really the way legalism works. It's just this added burden. It's added to God's word, right? What, What God was telling Moses in these verses in Exodus and Deuteronomy is that he didn't want his people engaging in this Canaanite fertility ritual. God was saying, You're to be different than the people around you. My people are not to look like or adopt the habits of the people in the world. And verse 8 goes on to say, And he stood by them under the timber, or under the tree, as they ate. So in some cultures, this is a sign of great hospitality and respect. You know, in our culture, we have a guest over. You know, we pass them the food. They take whatever they want. It goes around the table. You don't take too much because in case they want some more, you want to make sure there's some uh, extra for them. You know, we call that hospitality. But in other cultures, in other parts of the world, the way it works out is the guests eat first. and, And they eat as much as they want to eat while the host is standing behind them watching. And then when they're done, the host and his family will sit down and and eat what's left over. That's hospitality hospitality to them. You know, uh, I've experienced this when I go to South Asia. Um, We go visit pastors that are working with us and their families. They won't eat with us. They put it out and they just stand back and wait for you to eat. And when you're all done, then they'll sit down and they'll eat the leftovers. And it's them communicating to us how welcome we are. It's them communicating to us the respect that, and, the, and the love that they have for us. You know, it's a sign of great hospitality. Although I got to admit, you know, it's a little bit uncomfortable for me. You know, people just standing by watching you eat, you know, and like, hey, guys, join us. You know, no, pastor, no, pastor. Enjoy, please. Well, verse nine says, then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. So it was viewed in this day that it was inappropriate for when a guest would come over for a woman to come out of the tent. That was uh, seen as inappropriate. It was culturally inappropriate. But apparently it's not inappropriate to just be listening, to be eavesdropping. And so that's what she's doing. She's listening to this conversation and she's right behind the door or the tent flap, whatever it is. And again, Sarah's 89. Abraham's 99 years old at this point. And last week we talked about how God had promised Abraham a son over and over again. God had promised Abraham that he was going to be the father of a great nation, and he's going to be a blessing to the entire world. And God had given Abraham uh, a promise, and he waits for 11 years at least for that promise to be fulfilled. And after all that waiting, at age 86, Abraham decides that, you know what, I'm going to go out and help God. So he tries He's tired of waiting for God to work out things in his timing and in his plan. And so, Abraham, he decides, you know what? Hey, I'm going to help God out. I'll go into Hagar, have a son. God's promised us a son, and I'm going to make it happen. And as a result, we talked about this last week. Remember, as a result, Ishmael was produced. Ishmael's such a warning to us about getting out ahead of the Lord, and it's so important. I just want to repeat it for a minute. We looked last week about this, this warning, Ishmael, such a warning, getting out ahead of the Lord. We don't want to do it. You know, we need to wait on the Lord to keep His promises that He's made to us. You know, I'm waiting, I'm going to wait on the Lord. I'm committed to waiting on the Lord to keep His promises that He's made to me in regards to this church. You know what? Ishmael speaks of strife. Ishmael speaks of tears and pain and warfare. Ishmael speaks of division and harshness. And I don't want those kind of things in the church. I don't want to get impatient and try in my flesh to to start this ministry or go in that direction, whatever the case may be. You know what? My heart is set on praying and seeking the Lord and waiting on Him to accomplish that which He wants to accomplish in our midst. And I believe if we'll do that, if we'll seek the Lord in prayer, if we'll wait on Him, I believe the Lord will do things in this church that looks nothing like anything we've ever seen in the past. You know what? God fulfills His promises. And we see God did provide a son to Abram Abraham, and Sarah. And he brought forth Isaac. And Isaac's name, again, it means laughter. And that's what we want in this church. We want laughter. We want joy. Just God's blessing uh, just raining down on us. So what a great warning this is to all of us. It's a warning to us as a church, but it's a warning to us individually also. What a warning it is for us to wait on his promises and try not to help God out in the efforts of our flesh. We wait for His plan. We wait for His timing. And we're going to read in Genesis 22, the Lord is going to tell Abraham, hey, take your son, your only son, whom you love. And wait a minute, you know what? Abraham had two sons. He had Ishmael and he had Isaac. But Ishmael was a work of the flesh, and God doesn't recognize him. You know, again, a warning to us. I don't want my life to be something that God doesn't recognize because I was trying to accomplish all these things for the kingdom in my flesh. I'm trying to do all these things for my family in my flesh and in my strength. You know, what? Abraham's 86 years old when Ishmael's born. And 13 years later, Abraham receives the promise again of a son for for himself uh, and Sarah, a son to come from his loins and from Sarah. And in verse 11, it says, Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced and aged. Um, You know, the King James Version says they were well stricken in age. And you know what? I'm learning age will beat you up right? If you don't know it, man, father time, he always wins. He fights dirty though. He goes for your knees. He goes for your back. You know, he's just not a fair fighter. And it says that she's well stricken in age, um, that Abram and Sarah were old. They were well stricken in age. And Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Verse 12, therefore Sarah laughed within herself, after I have grown old, Shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? Now, look closely at what it says here. It says, Sarah laughed within herself. She doesn't laugh out loud. You know what? She laughs within her heart. And verse 13, And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Surely I shall bear a child since I am old? Uh, the Lord asked Abraham, Hey, why Sarah laugh? And you know, I bet you, Uh, Abraham probably thought, what are you talking about? Right? Because Sarah didn't didn't laugh out loud. She laughed within herself. She said that within her heart. Why do you think God asked Abraham why Sarah laughed? Why didn't he ask Sarah why she laughed? Well, I think a clue is found in verse 12. It says, therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, after I've grown old, shall I have pleasure my Lord being old also. You know, I would make the suggestion based on the observation that that this theme kind of runs through the Bible, that the husband is to be the head of the household, right? And the wife is to be in submission. Now, before everybody gets all upset, please listen, okay? Please. Submission is something that our culture has made into an ugly word. You know, our culture has defined the one who's in submission to another, that, you know, they're less of a person than the one they're submitting to. But it's not true. Our culture has made the idea of wives submitting to their husband, uh, they've made this idea of it being demeaning or derogatory, you know, but it's not true. Christ was in submission to the Father when He comes and He wins our salvation. Jesus isn't less than the Father because He submitted to the Father. In fact, the Father said, as a result of Jesus humbly submitting to Him, the Father says, "God has also highly exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and those uh, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess." That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Bible teaches that we should submit one to another. Husbands, you're to submit to your wives as well as wives are to submit to their husbands. And the promise from God is that if we're willing to humble ourselves, we will receive great grace from the Father, and He will lift us up. He will exalt us. And that's what James says, right? God's plan is that wives would lovingly submit to their husbands who are to be, and guys, listen to this. We're to be loving servant leaders. Our wives are to submit to us, but we're to be loving and we're to be servants to them in our leadership. And that's what we are to be, guys. We're to be these loving servants to our wives. And God's plan from Genesis to Revelation is that the husband would take the lead in the home. And isn't it interesting here that God asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? I think it's another illustration that God holds the husband uh, responsible for what's going on in the home. If um, well, you see it over and over again throughout the Bible. It says, here we see, uh, why did Sarah laugh? God asking Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Saying, shall I surely bear a child since I'm old? Now, if you go back to Genesis 17, verses 16 and 17, 17 God tells Abraham, and I will bless her, that is Sarah, and also give her a son by her, give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. And Abram fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? Now, you might recall that I said Abraham, uh, he was laughing out of just sheer joy. And that's why God doesn't rebuke him. Uh, But when Sarah laughed, the Lord rebukes her. And a lot of people think it was because she laughed in disbelief. And it appears that that's exactly what's going on here. But there's another possibility, right? It may be possible that Abraham was laughing uh, because of doubt that was in his heart. And because of his doubt, his wife began to doubt. And that's why the Lord asked Abraham, hey, why is Sarah laughing? Because that doubt started with Abraham. If that's a a correct interpretation, we need to see how the father sets the tone. He sets the spiritual mood within the family. If If a husband is doubting the Lord, then the wife is going to be doubting the Lord. And then the kids, they're going to be, uh, again, to doubt the things of the Lord. If the dad sins, those sins are often reproduced in the children. And we see that in Abraham and Isaac's life, right? Abraham lied about his wife saying that Sarai was his sister. And that's exactly the same thing we see Isaac doing with his wife. And that may be what we see going on here that the doubt showed up in Abraham first and it was transmitted showing up in Sarah, his wife. And Abraham was setting the tone for the spirituality of his house. But the converse is also true, thank God, right? If we as men, if we're praying, if we're seeking the Lord, if we're reading our Bibles, we're going to more than likely see our wives our children praying, seeking the Lord, reading their Bibles. Husbands set the tone for what happens in the home. Verse 14, God, he answers, hey, is anything too hard for the Lord? And I want you to know there are circumstances in our life that are so overwhelming. And, and I'm not telling you anything new. You've probably experienced it too. There are circumstances in our life that's so overwhelming. When we place God's promises next to those circumstances, you know, it just seems like there's no way. But God would ask us, hey, is there anything too hard for the Lord? That's God's answer to each one of us when we think there's no way. Uh, Just look at the situation, get a grip, it's not going to happen. I mean, be real. I can remember there was a guy that I knew, we were once friends. But he heard something or or he thought something. I don't know what it was. But whatever it was, it embittered his heart towards me. And I drove past his house twice a day, you know, going to work and coming home. And each time I would drive past his house, I would just pray for him. I pray that God would bless him. I pray God would uh, restore our friendship. And one day while I was driving past his house going home, you know, uh, right after I prayed, you know, God, would you do a miracle and restore a friendship? And you know, all of a sudden I hear this voice in my head saying, no, even that's too great for the Lord to do. Even that's too big for God. And you know what? I didn't mean to say it. As soon as I said it, you know, I asked for forgiveness. God, no. What am I saying? I tried to retrieve those words that were in my mind, you know? But I, I couldn't believe That that I even thought that 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 it even came from me, but apparently that is what was really in my heart. You know, I asked for forgiveness. Well, it wasn't too long after that that you know this friend of mine he approaches me, he comes up to me, and he apologizes for the way he had been treating me, and he he he, uh, made it clear that it had nothing to do with me that caused this rift between us, and uh, you know our friendship was restored. And, you know, it's just so great because that was God showing me that there's truly nothing too hard for him. When you take the promise, promises of God, like he's going to work all these things together for your good, and you see them and, and you say, man, there's no way. I don't see how it's possible. You know, that's because you're seeing it through the vantage point of your ability to change uh, the situation. Man, you know what? I have no ability. I I have no ability to change anything. What we need to do is see it in light of God's ability to change things. And there's nothing, nothing at all. There is no thing that's too hard or impossible for God. So many things are impossible for me, but nothing is impossible for God. God spoke the universe into existence. How hard do you think it is to make a star out of nothing? You know what? much less the entire universe. And God spoke it, and bam, there it was. It's not too hard for God. God's word, God's promises are going to have the final say in every circumstance uh, in our life. You know, when we pray and God says no to our prayer, it's not because he can't do anything about that situation that we're praying about. That's not it at all. He says no because the circumstances that we're currently facing you know, it's all part of his plan to make us into the people he wants us to be. It's part of his plan for his, our lives. God is saying no when God is saying no. You know, what he's saying is, actually, this is the best thing for you, right? Because he can only do wonderful things. You know, I'll share with you one of my favorite verses. It's Psalm seventy-two eighteen. One of my favorite verses, seventy-two eighteen. it says, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. Hey, why are you facing the circumstances you're facing, even after you've prayed and prayed and prayed and asked God to change them? You know what? I don't know why. But what I do know is whatever reason He allows those circumstances in your life, it's a wonderful reason, because God can only do wondrous things. And maybe this is a word for someone tonight to just be clinging to is anything too hard for the lord Jeremiah 32:17 you might turn there real quick Jeremiah 32:17 says ah oh lord god behold you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm there is nothing too hard for you and 10 verses later Jeremiah 32:27 god asks this rhetorical question says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? And the way the question is being worded, it demands a negative response. No, Lord, there's nothing too hard for you. That's what the angel told Mary. Remember when he announced to her that she would have a son? He said, With God, nothing will be impossible. And again, maybe that's a word for you tonight. Maybe that's something that God would speak to you and encourage you to hang on to um, whatever it is that you're facing. God is with you, and there's nothing too hard for Him. He wants to, and He's willing to do for you all that you can't do for yourself. And may God give you faith tonight to expect great things from our great God. You know, I pray for us as a church that we would have this proper, proper view of God. So much of the church in general, you know, they have such a limited, lifeless, dead view of God. But our God is able to do exceedingly above and beyond, so far beyond anything that we could ask or even imagine because He's a great God. He's such a great God, we should expect great things from Him. I remember reading a book from uh, John Piper and he encouraged the readers to think great thoughts about God because he's a great God. Man, I just want to think great thoughts about God. Lord, cause us as a church, cause us as individuals to just think great thoughts about you. Help us to expect great things from you, Lord, for you're a great God. He's worthy of us thinking great thoughts toward about Him. Verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you, and according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. For she was afraid, and he said, no, but you did laugh. You know, Sarah's like, how the heck did he know? I did, I did it in my heart. How did he know? Um, you know, she was afraid, and she denies it. And the Lord says, no, Sarah, you actually did laugh. I heard it. The Lord is not coming down on her here. It's so important to see. The Lord's not coming down on her. What he's trying to do is encourage her faith because he knows, she knows, that no regular person, no ordinary person could possibly have known that she had laughed and said what she said in her heart. He's revealing to Sarah who he really is. It's only God, Sarah, that would know that. And if it's God who's made the promise, Sarah knows that he's going to keep that promise. Isn't it just like us, though? Sarah and Abraham, man, I mean, they've been, they've been praying for a son. Man, that's all they've wanted for such a long time. For most of their life, that's all they wanted is just a son. Lord, would you give us a son? And now the time that the promise is near to being fulfilled they doubt it. And isn't I don't know if you've ever been there, or if that's ever happened to you, but boy, isn't that just like us? Verse 16, Then the men arose from there and looked towards Sodom, and Abraham, Abraham went with them to send them away. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? If you're a believer tonight, This promise has been fulfilled in you. It was through Abram's lineage that the Messiah came into the world and offered uh, salvation to you. And how great a blessing is it to have your sins taken away in Christ and to have his righteousness applied to your account? Man, it's a priceless blessing. We're so blessed, right? We're sons of God, we're co heirs with Christ. The Bible says that all of this present suffering that we're enduring right now, that we're we're experiencing right now, all that present suffering is not worthy to be compared to the weight of glory that will be revealed in us one day, that glory that's ahead of us. We're so blessed in Christ Jesus. You know, in a time like this when our country is wondering what the heck is going on, I mean, there's chaos all over the country. You know what? We have the hope of heaven. You know, what a blessing that is. How calming and peaceful is that? Boy, I'm going to heaven. I'm a day closer to heaven. My name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. To know where we're going when we leave this world, what a blessing that is. To know one day soon that the Lord is going to return for His church and we're going to see Him face to face, what a blessing that's going to be. And until that time... He's entrusted us with the answers to the world's problems. We're his ambassadors. The answer, of course, is Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross at Calvary. And until that time when he comes and receives us to himself, he wants to use us for his glory, to reach those all around us. What a privilege that is. What a blessing it is. We're so blessed. And verse 19 says, for I've known him, Again, the Lord speaking, for I've known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they uh, keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. We're known of God in order that we would command our children and our household to keep the way of the Lord. And again, it's not something that's to be done harshly. Man, it's something to be done as a loving servant leader. But we're to command, we're to charge our children to keep the way of the Lord and to do righteousness and justice. There's a way that seems right to man, the Proverbs say. It seems right to our kids, but it says the end of, of the way is death. You know, we're not to suggest to our kids the way they're, they're to go, we're to command them, we're to charge them with the way they should go. The fathers are to have an authority within the house. Joshua, what did he say? He said, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. No, we're not going to watch that. It's not pleasing to the Lord. No, we're not going to hang out with those people anymore because they have a negative influence on you. No, we're not going to listen to that music anymore because it's not edifying to you. Guys, this is what the Lord requires us requires of us as husbands, It's not our wives job. You know, our wives, they have a role in leading the family, but God holds uh, us as men responsible for what goes on in the family. And again, it's not to be, you know, dictatorial. It's to be a servant leader, not a lording leader. We're to be a loving servant leader. Verse eight, uh, verse 20. And the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave. I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And I will. And, I, and if not, I will know. These angels, they're heading off to Sodom. They're going to bring judgment, right? Um, and there's been this outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. Apparently, you know, people have been praying and asking the Lord to intervene. Now, when we read here that God is going to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah, To see whether or not what he's hearing is accurate and if it's not he's going to know you know that doesn't mean that God doesn't know it's just a poetic way of saying that the Lord never enters into judgment without thoroughly investigating without knowing exactly what's going on before he administers that judgment it's a poetic way of saying God is just and he never never enters into judgment unjustly Verse 22, then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, but Abram, Abraham, you know, you say Abraham when his name is Abram. And I say Abram when his name is Abraham. Gary, get a grip, get it together. Uh, Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Now the angels, they head off to Sodom and the Lord, he never actually goes. We see the Lord now hanging back And he's going to commune with uh, Abraham. And we're going to see this beautiful Old Testament example of intercessory prayer. You know, Abraham, he's concerned for God's reputation. We're going to see that. And we want to notice that Abraham's up front with his request. Right? He's bold and he's persistent. He's persevering in prayer. And that's what intercessory prayer is all about. He says... Verse 23, then Abraham came near and said, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? It says that Abraham came near, and that's what prayer is all about. It's about coming near to the Lord. It's about communing with the Lord. And this is what we're doing on the underground prayer meetings on Saturday nights. We're coming near to the Lord, and we're communing with the Lord and asking him for the things that are actually on his heart. We're going to see that as Abraham prays. And you know what? We're asking him things in regards to the church. We're praying for the church. We're asking him for things in regards to you. We're praying for, for you and the people in the church. And I want to encourage you to come out and be part of drawing near to the Lord in intercession. It's such a blessing. Well, verse 24, suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of, the, of all the earth do right? And this is a, the kind of relationship Abraham had with the Lord. Abraham's concerned with God's honor and his reputation. Abraham basically is saying, Lord, If you judge Sodom and the word gets out that you brought judgment on the righteous as well as the wicked, uh, what's that going to do for your reputation when, when people see that you're not able to discern or discriminate between the righteous and the wicked? You know, in reality, Abraham, he doesn't have to worry about God's reputation because God is righteous and just and his judgment is absolutely perfect. He's not going to destroy the righteous with the wicked. And it's an Old Testament picture of the rapture for us, right? God pours out His wrath on this Christ-rejecting world. That's the seven years of tribulation. But you know what we're going to see is He's going to take His people out of the world before that, right? Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says, For God did not appoint us to wrath. He didn't appoint the church to wrath, but to obtain salvation, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And similar verses you might look at, 1 Thessalonians 1.10 and Romans 5.9. Abraham's concerned, though, he's concerned about God's reputation. So what does he do? He kind of breaches this subject with God. Verse 26, so the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place, a place for their sakes. Then Abraham answered and said, indeed now, I, who am but dust and ashes, have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the fifty righteous. Would you destroy all the city for the lack of five? So he said, if I find there are forty-five, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him again and said, suppose there should be forty found there. He said, I will not do it for the sake of forty. Then he said, let the Lord not be angry and I'll speak. Suppose there were thirty that should be found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, indeed, now I have taken it upon uh, myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak once more. Suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. God is not offended by what Abraham is doing here. God is dealing with a man that has the same concern for souls that he has. So there's no negotiation going on here. The Lord is happy to be able to answer yes to these requests. God is willing to do more uh, than what Abraham is willing to ask him for. That's the reality. Abraham probably starts to count, you know, how many are in Lot's family now, you know, like... You know, okay, there's at least 10 in his family, so uh, they're going to be safe. And then verse 33, so the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. And again, I want you to take notice of that word, speaking. At least take notices, notice of it in your mind, right? God did not see this as a negotiation. This, it wasn't, you know, Abraham dickering with God, as we so often uh, hear God sees it as a conversation with one of His children who shared the same heart that He has. God's not willing that any should perish, but that the world would come to repentance. And what's interesting is even though God agreed to save Sodom for the sake of ten righteous, what turned out was that there was only one that was righteous that was found in Sodom, and God takes took every step to remove Lot, to remove that one before he pours out his judgment on the city. God's grace is way, way beyond us. You know, when he judges, he is so just. He is so fair. You know, we don't have to worry that he'll do less than the right thing when he is forced to judge. God knows how to make his judgment righteous. And we don't need to be concerned about the innocent getting caught up in his judgment. We don't need to be concerned about collateral damage of the innocent. And I believe if we would press in in prayer for this town of ours, you know, I believe God will use us to reach this town for him. I honestly believe it. God wants to do greater things here in Truckee than we want him to do. But I I think he's just waiting. I think he's just looking for willing partners, right? Someone who will engage in prayer for the lost. Someone that has the same type of heart he has for the lost. If, If we will see value in prayer and seek the Lord for revival here in Truckee, I believe he'll give us souls. I think the question comes down to this. How bad do you want it? How bad do we want it? You know, would you like to see souls saved here in Truckee? You know, my encouragement is let's pray. Let's get together as a body and just plead with the Lord to just bring revival. I believe with my whole heart He'll do it. If we'll intercede for those that have no hope of salvation, for those that are currently dead in their sins and and trespasses and headed for certain judgment, you know, I believe if we do it, He'll move on our behalf. His grace is so far beyond our, our ideas. He's so far beyond us. You know, and I encourage you, come out on Saturdays to pray, 6, 630 at the Garbarino's house, and let's press in and see what God will do in this town. You know, if you're not a believer, hey, uh, first off, you know, before I go here, I want to thank everybody for your patience. You know, somebody said the pastor is the only guy that's willing to work overtime for free, and nobody's happy about it. I know I'm going a little bit long, but we're going to finish up here, okay? If you're not a believer today, you need to know that God is just. That's who He is. He's a just God. He has to judge sin or else He wouldn't be just, right? But He's made a way that we can escape His judgment, you know, and it's just by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. If you're willing to confess your sins and turn from your sins, turn from that lifestyle, and give your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then he'll forgive you of your sins. He'll come into your life and and give you the power to walk with him in obedience to his word. And believe me when I say, personally, I think it's ridiculously, ridiculously easy to give our lives to somebody who loves us so much that he would die so that we would never have to be separated uh, from him for eternity in hell. No one else in the world loves us as much as he loves us. No one else in the world wants uh, the good things that he wants for us. Let's pray. Father God, I'm just so thankful for your, your love and grace. Thank you, thank, thank you for this chapter, Lord, just so much here, Lord. Thank you for getting us through it. Father God... Would you work in our hearts all that you want to work in our hearts? Lord, may we surrender to you and just let you have your way with us. Lord, what do you want to do? We're yours. What do you want to do? Just move in our hearts, move in our lives. Make us into the men and women you want us to be. Let your word wash over us and accomplish that purpose you sent it forth for, Lord. For anybody that maybe would be praying and asking you, Lord, to meet them, I pray that you would give them courage to to make that request of you, to forgive them of their sins. And Lord, that they would understand that we receive that by faith. That when they pray that, they're not the same person they are after they pray that. Lord, I just pray that you would just wash them, cleanse them. Lord, meet them where they're at. Give them the power to live for you, Lord. I ask it in your name. Amen.